Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Here's the good news for J.B. Pritzker. After a 22-month campaign, he was elected governor of Illinois in November. And here's the bad news. He was elected governor of Illinois in November, and there are a boatload of problems that he's going to face when he is inaugurated in a few days. I sat down with J.B. at the end of the year in Chicago to talk about his plans for Illinois, but also about his extraordinary journey as part of one of America's most prominent business families, as a a very successful entrepreneur, especially in the tech space, but also as someone who has experienced enormous tragedy and loss and bounced back from it. Here's that conversation. J.B. Pritzker, really great to see you. you. You look remarkably well for a guy who's about to take on the duties of governor of Illinois, with all of the challenges that that encompasses. But uh, we'll get to all of those. But happy holidays. Good to be with you. Thank you. Happy holidays. We 20, should... 22 months of campaign and, and yeah. winning actually is energizing. Yeah. Yeah. You look remarkably good. We, um, uh, I should point out to our listeners, this podcast is being uh, recorded just before the holidays, and it will air just days before you take office. So... I just want to place us in in time. Um, you know, it, it, most people know two things about you. One is you just got elected governor of Illinois, and the other is that you're a very wealthy person. And very few people know the backstory of how you got from there to here. Um, and I, I think it's one that people should know because you were born into. Uh, a prosperous uh, family. First of all, go back. I, 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 your your sister Penny was on this podcast some time ago, and she recounted some of this history. But just remind people about the the journey of the Pritzkers uh, in this country. I have a brother too. If you want to interview him sometime, yes, just so you know. yeah, I know. <laughs> we try and do one every quarter. Is what we do here. Yeah. One Pritzker quarter. I like it. Um, so uh, my family arrived in this country in 1881, um, and interestingly, President Trump just uh, was attacking a an immigrant organization, immigration organization called Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. Uh, that's uh, still today operating and helping people, refugees. And that immigrants. was the group. Wasn't that the group that infuriated that guy who who uh, attacked the synagogue in Pittsburgh? They're they're yes. helping people at the border now. Indeed, and uh, the, the 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 exactly the the the, the fellow who was uh, who was um, you know the cause of of so many deaths, uh, yes. Squirrel Hill. 
um, was uh, was railing against the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. And that organization's been around for more than 100 years. And as it happens in its earliest years, uh, my family benefited from the, the, the amazing work that they do. And so uh, arriving here with nothing, escaping from the pogroms in the Ukraine, um, they originally were sponsored by a family in Clinton, Iowa. Uh, and so they arrived by train uh, after arriving, of course, by boat in the United States, arrived by train in Clinton, Iowa, to this family, uh, got off the train. And were there Jews in Clinton, Iowa? or was? As a matter of fact, there were, apparently. <laughs> um, they may have been the only Jews in Clinton, <laughs> Iowa, and, they, and that may still be the only record of a Jew living in Clinton, Iowa. But, uh, but they arrived and, and then found out there were no jobs available in Clinton, Iowa. And so they said, well, where's the nearest big city so we can go find a job? And they pointed toward Chicago. And so they got back on the train and came to Chicago, didn't know anybody, didn't have a family sponsoring them in Chicago, lived in the Chicago train station for the first few little while. And uh, and your great-grandfather, was he was a determined guy, right? He, he was. Re- he taught himself English by reading newspapers. He did, and he sold the Chicago Tribunes on a street corner. I know that's your former employer at one time. Yeah, when there were these, such a thing as people selling newspapers on the street corner. That's right, and uh, thank goodness there were back then. And yeah. so... Um, uh, so that's how my family, you know, came to Chicago. And then, of course, my great-grandfather arriving here at age 9 or 10, um, he uh, he managed to, you know, go to a public school and, you know, got a social service agency, gave them a place to live. Uh, and then he went to a public university and eventually got his pharmacy degree. And then he got a, a uh, law degree and became successful uh, at practicing law and had three sons who were lawyers. Uh, my grandfather was one of those. And he had three children, three sons. Two of them be, became lawyers, including my father. Be, be, uh, before we, we get to that, I have to ask you about your, your grandfather, because he has a colorful history. Um, of, some of his clients were, um, were, were mobsters. And Back in the day, um, you know, the west side of Chicago, there was a lot of activity re- relative to that. That was a uh, sort of a hotbed of, of organized crime and so on. But he straddled this line between um, the underworld and the business world in a, in a really interesting way. Well, that's a little overblown, but he had a partner – in the law firm that they created, uh, who was who it turned out later um, had some connection to the mob, um, but he was not uh, engaged in it. And <clears throat> to be frank, he was a real estate lawyer who uh, ultimately got sick of being a lawyer um, and serving clients and watching transactions where the the real estate developers were making a lot of money and the lawyers were getting you know paid by the hour. Bupkis, so, as we say, exactly. And he and his brother uh, Jack, his younger brother, um, ultimately went into the became principals, so to speak, in a real estate endeavor, um, and. You'll be interested to know that one of the first deals they did was a huge failure, and 
uh, they had borrowed money from the First National Bank of Chicago. Uh, and uh, and so they could have walked away from the loan that they got from First National Bank, but didn't. And over the subsequent 10 years, this is the years during the Depression and coming out of the Depression, uh, my grandfather ended up uh, paying back the First National Bank of Chicago, which he was not required to. He could have literally just walked away and kept going with his, like you can today in bankruptcy um, on a project, but he didn't. He paid them back, and as a result, the, the leadership at First National Bank of Chicago sort of shocked that here's somebody who's actually living up to their word, um, ended up doing business with him really for the rest of his life um, and being partners in the endeavor of of my grandfather building up the real estate business that he built up. And and your dad has an interesting, uh, had an interesting story in that he took over this project, which was this motel that uh, the family bought out in Los Angeles, right? That's right. And uh, that motel became the first of what we now know as the Hyatt Hotel chain. That's right. Um, the there was a motel owned by a guy named Hyatt Von Den, uh, <laughs> and it was uh, a Hyatt House is what it was called, uh, and it was actually very interesting. Um, nobody really thought of uh, even the term airport motel back then. Um, and back then, the motels that were near airports were, you know, the seediest kind of motels. Um, they were uh, it was seemed like it was a hard place to be in the hospitality business was near an airport. Um, But this guy had somehow, this motel was running 100% occupancy all year round. And it was the late 50s. And so it was an unusual situation in Los Angeles, which was burgeoning. Uh, and so here, this very uh, unusual industry of, of airport motels uh, was uh, almost at that time non-existent and, and nascent. And uh, so my father, who was the youngest of three uh, sons of my grandfather, all three of them very successful. You know, my father had gone to Harvard, was a crypto analyst in the Navy, you know, graduated cum laude, um, you know, from school and went to University of Chicago Law School. Uh, but his older brothers Fine were- Fine institution. Uh, uh, almost as good as Northwestern. I know, um, I knew that was but, coming. Uh, but I will say that the, his older brothers had been uh, even even more successful at, in, in their educational careers and so on. So, um, so here he was, kind of the, the young youngest kid in a highly successful group of uh, family members. And I think he really wanted to go strike out on his own and try and be successful on his own. And so that's how he ended up saying, well, wow, there's here's this real estate project you've got, which really was only intended to be a, a real estate investment at one time, real estate investment, because it was paying for, you know, having the motel on the property was paying the mortgage on the property. And that was really great because you were in a growing area where property values are going up and something's paying for your mortgage. Mm-hmm. Um, so he said, well, why don't I go out there? I'll run it. You don't have anybody running it. So he moved with my mother. My sister was six months old at the time. Um, and they went out and started you know, buying motels Next to airport, San Francisco, which is next to the airport, exactly. Right. That was where the first uh, one in San Francisco area was next to the airport. Oh, and all of the first ones were motels next to airports. I see. So I got it backwards. San Francisco was the first. No, uh, L.A. was first, and oh, then, then the San second Francisco. one they grew. And to you San got, Francisco. and that's where you grew up. It is. So after they had. Uh, bought a second one, they needed to have some headquarters, and they decided that the San Francisco Bay Area and next to this motel. And in fact, just a quick story, this is Burlingame, California. This was 
was uh, not a good neighborhood. Um, and so my father got a great idea, uh, which was he went to the highway patrol, which was the, their office was somewhere nearby. And he said, uh, he said, we, our coffee shop will give any of your highway patrolmen a free meal between sundown and sunup uh, anytime they want. And so from then on, the parking lot at this in this you know CD area, the, the parking lot of the Hyatt House was filled with police. Ah. Uh, and so it was safe to come to the Hyatt House. That's shrewd. Yeah, it was brilliant. That's shrewd. Yeah. By all accounts, uh, your dad was this ebullient guy. I mean, you, I can see in you some of the qualities that we hear about, that he was outgoing and loved a good joke and was uh, just a warm personality. Um, you lost him. He was in his 30s mm-hmm. when you were seven years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what memories do you have of that? Well, unfortunately, the most striking memory, of course, is his death. Um, uh, you know, afterward and through the rest of my life, you know, my memories of him are mixed with pictures that I've seen and stories people have told me, you know, mm-hmm. um, and because I was seven and, you know, here was this kind of shocking thing that occurred because uh, he was 39 years old. And I think, uh, you know, I later uh, went and talked to all the people who knew him. Um, I did a little video for my own kids uh, about my father and mother's uh, lives because my mother also passed yes, away we'll um, but uh, uh, I wanted my kids to know who they were and so and when when I did that um, all of them said the, the same thing I mean I went and talked to all these different people in different places in the country uh, did you they, do this yourself I did yeah uh-huh. and 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 they all said the same thing which was the most shocking thing about it is he was the life of our group. Like yeah, everybody yeah. loved him and he was the thing that held us all together. And he was uh, this, and nobody could imagine that this person of all of us would be the first among us to die. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, he, he, um, he ran hard, you know, he was, uh, he built he a just, business. Hyatt became the fastest growing hotel chain in America under him. And, um, you know, and he built this little motel into this, you know, burgeoning hotel chain uh, that was unusual for the, you know, for the uh, atrium lobbies and the architecture mm-hmm. of the hotels at the time. Uh, and, and, and he play, and he, he had just gotten off the tennis court when he... That's right. My mother was with him and she, unfortunately, he died in her arms. Uh, yeah. And how was that? Do you remember as a seven-year-old being told this? I do. Um, in fact, uh, I remember that um, we, uh, some friends of ours uh, came over on a Sunday. Uh, they picked us up from Sunday school, um, and they took us out. Uh, to. We didn't know why they were picking us up from Sunday school, but we all got picked up from Sunday school, the three of us, and they took us out to Fisherman's Wharf, which is a fun yeah. area of San Francisco, uh, and, you know, we thought, well, great, that's a lot of fun. Um, we're going to go spend time with our parents' friends who were friends of ours. Um, and we did that all day, and we weren't sure why. But, you know, when we got home, our mother was home. Now, it, what was happening at that time, which we didn't know, was she was flying back because they had been in Hawaii where mm-hmm. my father had passed away and where they were opening a hotel. And um, and uh, so my mother needed time to get back, and she did not want us to see the television where they were reporting on my father's death. Uh So she asked her friends to take us out and keep us busy all day while she could get home so she could tell us. And so when we got home, she told us, and um, 
uh, you know, it was devastating for all of us. Um, most devastating for her. Um, yes, it was. By every account, she was this also very smart, uh, you know, really impressive person. Um, and she was pitched into uh, a kind of hell after that. That's true. Um, my my mother became an alcoholic. Um, you know, pe- people uh, talk about alcoholism like it's uh, something that j- happens to you um, one day, you know, or you fall into it or say It's actually, uh, you know, I think it's uh, something that people are born with a proclivity uh, to, just as I think we're finding in DNA uh, testing that, um, you know, there are different diseases that people are susceptible to as a result of, you know, heredity. Uh, but either way, um, it, she, her drinking became a predominant part of her life. And, um, you know, the, remember the, you she, know, I, just on this issue of, uh, I, I, you know, my dad committed suicide when I was ni- uh, when he when I was 19. And I've talked about that a lot. But um, it strikes me that if you have a proclivity to alcoholism, he did not. But and you are also depressed. It is the it is the easiest way to sort of self medicate. That's right, and I think looking back on it, that's precisely what what happened. Um, and I, I can just say that you know my mother was an amazing person. Really, mm-hmm. um, this was somebody who she really helped to build Hyatt. Uh, it, there's no way it had the flair, the feel, the marketing you know muscle that it had without my mother, who um, you know was there decorating the lobbies and, you know, helping to create the first logo for the hotel and motel rather. And, um, and so this is just a remarkable, you know, graduate sure. of Radcliffe. And was involved, uh, your folks and she in particular were involved in politics out there in California. That's right. Uh, Senator Tunney, John Tunney was a guest in your home. I guess she worked with Nancy Pelosi at some point. Indeed, uh, Nancy Pelosi, I think, was a, a maybe a supervisor mm-hmm. in San Francisco County um, at the time, and and yeah, we knew Nancy Pelosi. I, I uh, you know, I actually skied with her kids once, and uh, and uh, we we knew them. Paul Pelosi. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mother was an activist. It wasn't just that we knew them socially. Yeah. It was my mother was was out advocating for candidates for you know progressive Democratic mm-hmm. candidates. Uh, and uh, as a kid, uh, I was and my brother and sister too. We were always enlisted to you know lick stamps and envelopes because back then that's how you got the word yes. out about your candidate was yes. stuff envelopes and 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 stamp them and send them off. Yes. Uh, and so we did all of that and knocking on doors. I mean, I went around knocking on doors for. for for um, you know, for the Democratic nominee for president, nineteen seventy six, Jimmy Carter, um, and um, and so she, was- my mother, had been actually a, later as Ted Kennedy mm-hmm. uh, supporter, and uh, you know, it was ironic that I ended up running against Chris Kennedy mm-hmm. uh, for governor uh, because His nephew, yeah, yeah, because I, you know, I grew up knowing you know the Kennedy for or at least knowing Ted Kennedy and his family pretty well. So she she descended into this long dark tunnel, and you you've spoken movingly about how what that meant for you because you were the youngest, uh, and you were there for uh, for a lot of this, and and you you worried about her smoking and drinking and falling asleep and starting a fire and so on. I have to tell you. Um, 
just in reading this, um, I just, uh, I mean, I teared up thinking about what it was like for a little guy, you know, and uh, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm asking you about that and what, what your recollections are yeah. of that. Well, first, uh, this was happening to my brother and my sister and me at the same time, and we were they different were a little ages, older though, a little bit. Yeah. yeah, my brother's four years older than I am. So when my father died, I was seven; he was eleven. Mm-hmm. My sister was thirteen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those, you know, if you think about the ten years subsequent until my mother's death, you know, we were all experiencing this in our different ways. But you know, teenagers, you know, that's a hard time yeah. period for my you know, for my, uh, siblings. Um, and, uh, and for me, you know, I was, I mean, you know, my mother, when you're seven, eight, nine years old, you know, your, your parents are everything. It's not as much your, 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 um, your friends as much as it is when you're a teenager, you know? And, um, and so, yeah, so I was, um, you know, I experienced it in a different way. Um, and there were times when I, you know, had to call 911 because my mother had, you know, slipped and fallen, um, uh, you know, because she'd been drunk and in the bathroom and just, you know, um, didn't want her drive, didn't want her driving you places. Well, that was the case. Yeah, that was absolutely the case. Never, never wanted her driving us anywhere. Um, always aware that, um, that, you know, that her health was at stake, uh, too, you know? Um, and so, as you said, you know, she was, she smoked, uh, cigarettes. And so sometimes she'd fall asleep in her bed, smoking a cigarette. Um, and I'd have to, you know, stay up and make sure that, um, you know, I'd sneak into her room and see if she was awake and, um, and occasionally have to take the cigarette out of her hand because she'd fallen asleep with it in her hand. So, um, yeah, I mean, those are, you know, those are hard uh, times, I think, as a kid, but uh, they also teach she you gave a you lot a book. about... She, I'm sorry, go yeah. ahead, Jamie. No, I'm sorry. No, please. Okay. I just, you know, I think, I think experiencing that, you know, teaches you uh, a lot about how difficult, you know, no matter what resources you have in the world, you know, no matter how good it seems to other people, like your, you know, your, her life was, right, as somebody who was, had been married to a successful businessman and had a nice house and a nice car, you know, that she was going through, as you said, hell. And, um, and at the same time, and this is the thing that I so admire about my mother, you know, she had three young kids and she wanted so much to be a good mother that she actually revealed, uh, to us one day, you know, she, she sat us down and said, you know, I'm an alcoholic. She gave you, she gave us a book. Yeah. She handed us each a book about alcoholism. And she said, "I I want you to know what alcoholism is, you know, that I, I love you more than anything in the world. I'm your mother and I want to be the best mother I can be. Sometimes I can't be because I have this disease and I'm trying really hard to overcome it, but know that I love you and there's nothing in the world that I wouldn't do for you. Um, but sometimes I find myself incapable. And now imagine you have, you know, you know, you have children, I have children, uh, to, to reveal yourself in that way yeah. to young children, to have to admit your, you know, challenges. Uh, I, I just think that that, that that took bravery, courage, you know, and also she wanted us, she wanted us to have strength. And that's why she did it. You know, it wasn't for yeah. any other reason than yeah. that. She wanted us to be strong and know that, you know, we're loved. Uh, yeah. so. And ultimately, uh, alcoholism killed her in a, in a, in a really uh, horrible way. 
It did. Um, she, you know, ten, 10 years almost to the day that my father passed away, um, she was, you know, she her car broke down in San Francisco and she was picked up by a tow truck and um, she, you know, they were turning a corner and um, something spooked her or she was disoriented. Um, it's unclear really what happened, but she, she stepped out of the cab of the uh, tow truck and was, um, was killed. And, um, and so, you know, I, and we were all, I mean, I was 17. Uh, you were away at, at prep school. I was at boarding school. Uh, my sister was at college, brother at college. Uh, and they, uh, called me and told me and, um, and it was, it was a difficult, you know, time. Um, it was shocking, uh, but in some ways not surprising, I guess, you know, just to think about it now. Um, uh, but, uh, we were all at that point, basically adults. Um, I mean, I was 17 and, yeah, you know, my brother, well, 21, that sister, 23. You become an adult when that happens for sure. I know that from my own experience, Yeah, but, and I'd add the, this, that, you know, going through the experience that we had, uh, as young people dealing with my mother's alcoholism, we had become, you know, mature yeah. and independent, uh, because of that. And so in some ways, although you're never prepared for, these shocking moments in your life, you know, in some ways we were prepared to stand on our own as a result of what we had gone through. I just want to, I want to move along to your, um, to your, your business uh, career that you built after all of that. And, uh, but uh, I, I don't, I want to say to anybody who's listening, who's struggling with alcoholism, struggling with depression, that uh, please ask for help, you know, ask for help. I know in your campaign for governor, you talked about improving mental health, the availability of mental health services in the state. Yeah, substance abuse, mental health, and there are professionals that are available to you, even if you think you can't afford it. um, It is available to you. And Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, there are organizations that are, you know, if you just look it up online or, you know, pick up a phone book, um, you know, you can find organizations. You've got to reach out, and you've got to reach out to a friend, um, to uh, someone who, you you know, loves you and, and would be willing to help you make that first step. Yeah. You went. Uh, you you went to law school. You went through college. You went to law school, uh, as you mentioned, at Northwestern, also a fine institution. Um, and you yourself uh, were attracted to entrepreneurism, uh, and particularly around the the tech uh, area. What what attracted you uh, to it? Well, it's funny. I've as I look back, and you know, I'm 53 now, and I think back to the, my 20s and wonder why did I make certain choices, yeah. you know, along the way. And I honestly think now that I look back, that much of my the attraction that I had to uh, the technology startup arena really had to do with my um, love of entrepreneurs and uh, their their resilience and their go to it, you know, fighter mentality. And uh, and I think. Uh, now that I think about it, it really was in a way um, I was able to get closer to my father 
by by doing this. And my whole life, I've been doing it uh, because he was that way. He was, you know, there was nothing that would uh, stop him from, you know, succeeding. And he did it in in a way that I think everybody saw was like, you know, he just worked so hard um, and succeeded in every way you could. And uh, and you know, and I've so I've gotten I've had the ability to experience that as a result of the career choices that I've made. And um, you not only invested, you 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 made an early smart investment, and you're you're in your business with your brother. Um, uh, you guys made a smart early investment uh, uh, in Facebook. Uh, that was one of the many things that you did. That was a more mature maturing yeah. kind of uh, uh, thing. I should ask you parenthetically, as someone who is a student of all of this, how are you? Uh, how are you interpreting what's going on with Facebook and some of these, some of the other major um, uh, tech communications, social media uh, outlets right now relative to the privacy issue, the Russia issue? How are they handling it? Well, you're seeing that that you know that industries. Uh, it's a wild west when industries get started. True, you know, when there's truly a, a new industry, not just a new business. Uh, it's the wild west for a while, and then everybody realizes that maybe there needs to be a little bit of regulation, and uh, whether it's industry self-regulation or government regulation, um, there comes a time when people recognize that um, that you know we've got to now pay attention to how to keep the public safe, privacy is a hugely important issue here in the 21st century. If we do not pay attention to it right now and protect people's individual privacy, it will be gone before you know it. We won't be able to rein it in. Um, I think none of us uh, is immune. If you have a device of any sort, um, you are essentially being tracked in one fashion or another. Um, and you may not even know it. And so we need, and, and, you know, this has all been happening, uh, without any, mostly without regulation, you know, who, who among us hasn't had the, you know, the, um, uh, licensing or whatever, you know, thing pop up and, you know, they say, well, you can read this, uh, mm-hmm. 43 page thing, or you can just hit accept right away. And I think most people don't read it. Yeah, and then, <laughs> and then you get these creepy pop-up ads that r- reflect the thing that you were just like googling about mm-hmm. or, or or on Facebook and you know just and you realize that there there is some there's an algorithm out there that has you all figured out it's uh it's my my great concern is that we are making these enormous advances technologically that are coming so rapidly that we don't have the the wherewithal to understand all of its implications and the way it's impacting our society and i mean you don't want you can't turn the clock back but how do we get some wisdom about how we approach these things? Well, unfortunately, as you know, legislation tends to come after a mistake gets made um, and, you know, where something bad happens. Uh, so it is hard to get ahead of these things. Um, you know, I think about the uh, geolocating that occurs on your phones. You know, most people barely know that, that their location services are going. And uh, and guess what? The world can find you wherever you are. Uh, I don't think that's something that everybody wants all the time. It's nice to be able to figure out where the nearest Starbucks or, you know, some other thing is by using your location services. But, do, you know, but I had something pop up on my phone uh, the other day where someone wants to share their location with me, someone I've never heard of, you know, would like me to share back my location. Um, thank goodness I got asked. 
Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I think we're this is we're now in a moment when we really need to pay attention to this because I I think that uh, the public mostly doesn't realize that they're, you know, that they're who they are is being taken away in a way. I mean, their privacy and their ability to, um, you know, to, to um, you know, uh, avoid all of these things. How, how do you think away. the tech firms have been at, at self-governing? Because it feels like they haven't been terribly transparent. Well, because they're making money uh, doing a lot of these things, right? I mean, Facebook is, you know, knows a lot about you, and uh, and that's a very beneficial thing for advertisers. Um, and so that this is, I, I don't think they've self-regulated well, um, and they've also not been proactive. And it's only when you know when they're getting beaten over the head that all of a sudden you see them you know, step up with, we've got some new way to regulate ourselves or some new transparency we're going to offer. Um, but it's very difficult, David, you know, when you think back to industries of the past, you know, the automobile industry, I mean, think about, you know, Ralph Nader made an entire yeah. career, uh, you know, uh, doing things that will keep the consumers safe, but it was after a lot of people died, you know, um, and the auto companies, uh, you know, are, you know, they're in business to make money. And um, so they were, you know, they didn't view these things as important. Um, so I, it's very difficult to get ahead of it. And you're right, the pace of technology makes this a bit of a dangerous endeavor. Artificial intelligence, yeah. you know, when you add that together with, um, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, there's internet everywhere, geolocation, uh, artificial intelligence, um, you know, and, and the ability to know so much about you personally, um, that, that could lead to bad consequences. You, uh, among your uh, successes, you were an early investor in egreetings.com, which was a big winner uh, for you. You also have been a promoter of uh, tech as a uh, industry in Chicago. You, you, you started uh, 1871, which is an incubator for tech startup. The number firms. one incubator in the world. You, how much is that a f part of um, Illinois' future? I think it's an enormous part of not just Illinois' future, but the future of states around the United States. But yeah. Illinois is going to be a leader. I figure you have a particular interest in this one. I do. Yes. And, uh, but I just want to say that we have the millennial generation uh, has been the most entrepreneurial in history. And uh, we need to take advantage of that fact. Um, uh, we need to continue the, to the, you know, our history in the United States is a history of entrepreneurship. Uh, we need to feed into that. It's good for our economy. It's good for the people of the U.S. Um, and especially good for Illinois. So I've focused on trying to expand the opportunity for people to start their own businesses and grow them since most of the jobs that get created in Illinois and around the country are created by people who have a good idea and are willing to take a chance and start a business. Two-thirds of all the jobs are startups and small businesses, and some of those grow into big businesses. I mean, Caterpillar was once a small business and now is mm -hmm. a big one. Um, Grubhub was a, founded here like just a few years ago, uh, actually a University of Chicago graduate, um, and is now a big company here in, mm -hmm. in Chicago. We can do more of that, and we can do it in places like Peoria and Carbondale. And yeah, Rockford. because, you know, the tech, uh, you associate tech with the coasts. Uh, and the question is, how do you attract it to the middle uh, of the country? And for Illinois, this is hugely important because we are, uh, as a state, losing population. Um, job growth has been laggard here um, for a variety of reasons, which we'll get to in a minute. But, uh, um, but unlocking that has to be 
a huge priority. It is. And um, again, entrepreneurs want to go to where the best entrepreneurial opportunities are and, you know, where the best talent is and uh, companies want to be where the best talent is. And that's why our universities are so important to our future. Um, and unfortunately, they've been defunded over the last number of years in Illinois. But that is where we, you know, make or break the future. Um, and, you know, to, you talk about out migration, that's an issue that can be stanched uh, by investment in uh, higher education. Uh, but it, when you talk about, you know, the tech world and, and, you know, how do we grow the opportunity in the state, I believe it's, you know, most of this comes out of our universities, our research institutions, the fact that we've got two national laboratories here mm -hmm. in Illinois. We, we need to, you know, we need to, to take all of those resources and coordinate them uh, to make sure that we're optimizing the commercialization of technology and um, and also raising up entrepreneurs and engineers. And fortunately, we've got a great university, several great universities in Illinois that produce great engineers. Since we're here, let, let me just ask you the, the sort of the state of Illinois questions, um, because you talk about the uh, defunding of our universities. That's not unusual that's happened in a lot of states around the country but illinois ha you know illinois is a fiscal basket case in many ways it, it is when they list the fiscal health of states illinois has, is is at the bottom we have structural budget issues in the state that you're going to have to you're going to have to solve um, how do we get here and how do we get out of it well, I heard you've become an enormous success, so I thought you would hopefully pay for it. Um, I know that's what people are thinking about you. Finally, a governor <laughs> who can finance us out of his own pocket. So uh. um, we have, we definitely have some real fiscal challenges in the state, and one of the reasons that I ran is because we cannot do this as an ideological endeavor. To fix the state is not an ideological endeavor. It isn't. You've got to be able to bring people together moving forward with the focus on solving problems, not on Democrats and Republicans, but how do we get from here out of the morass uh, that we're in? So, um, so I'm, you know, I'm a very practical person. I see a problem. I put people together to help solve the problem, and I provide, you know, leadership and vision for where we ought to go. But you gotta, you've got to work together to get it done. The the practical focus of that is that you know people often think of solving a budget problem as well. You need to cut government or you need to raise taxes as if those are you know mutually exclusive solutions you need to do both you do and you also need to um, make sure that you're growing the economy of the state which has grown at a slower pace than almost you know, and the conundrum is that if you, you if you if some of that requires investment by government by the state in things like higher education and so finding the resources to do that, is a is a big challenge. Yeah, but but we we have enormously valuable assets, you know, for doing that, for for succeeding at this. Uh, it isn't again, you know, we talk about expenses and revenues in the state, and growth is a hugely important part of that. We we are not it, we are not a bankrupt state. We are not. We have great assets in the state, and we have you know there is commerce going on in the state, and there is um, there's locomotion. That's, that's what makes it also shocking, and people suggest, well, that's a function of politics as much as anything else, irresponsible decisions by successions. Last time I saw you, um, we had this discussion. Um, 
because I, I mentioned some of the pension decisions uh, that were made over the time. And I have to tell you, Abner Mikva, someone you and I both knew, wonderful, uh, amazing uh, political figure in Illinois, said when he was in the legislature in 1960, as you know, he was a very progressive guy, and he voted against a pension bill because he said, I don't know how we're going to pay this down the line, and we got, unless there's a way to do that. I'm not good. That was in 1960, <laughs> and people kept making these decisions. And uh, you know, I'm a big supporter of paying people what they deserve, and and I think we, you know, retirement security is so important uh, to people. But um, this is a structural issue, and I, I just don't understand how there is. There's no pain-free solution to it, is there? Nope, nope. there's no pain-free solution. Um, but, you know, you got to start with some principles here, right? And I think you articulate one of them, which is, look, if you've been promised a pension and you've lived your life to prepare for the moment when you would retire and, uh, you know, and someone says to you, we're going to take away 20% of what you had, um, that's pretty hard um, for people who are, you know, who are on the verge of retirement. What about people who are working now in the workforce? Well, and new employees, uh, certainly in state government, are getting have a different deal than people who have worked in state government for 20 years or more. Um, and so, look, I, I think when you make a promise, you should live up to the promise. And I've said that throughout the campaign, and I really believe that. And that doesn't mean that we can't address the pension challenge, because it's, it's a financial issue of the state that's more than just about what's going out the door today for people uh, who are retiring. Uh, but it, it is, it, for example, you know, as you know, we're in a pension ramp that was put mm -hmm. in place in 1995. And uh, there was an irresponsible governor, you know, t twice during the course of 20, uh, whatever years that is, uh, 23 years, uh, that uh, pension payments have been skipped. Um, so here we are in this, you know, worse situation than we were. But it's yeah, because man, we a pension ramp for those who don't know mean that you get to the top of it and don't look down because <laughs> it's a long way down. But what's interesting about that, David, is I mean, just to point out that uh, when you get to 2045, uh, which is the end of the pension ramp, if you've paid all those payments, right? Uh, I hope to. Yeah, you will. <laughs> you will. Um, uh, 2046, the pension payment goes from about 20 billion to 1 billion. Mm -hmm. um, now, the question is, you know, is when you own a house for a long period of time, yes, you can end up paying it off, but it is often the case that over the years, you know, you're... And you're, it crowds out these investments that you want to make. It does. And and uh, having said that, I mean, I think, you know, we have got to pay down our pension uh, um, liability here in the state. And, and I have said all along that, you know, we need to put a little more into the pension system. We need to flatten out the amortization schedule so that it's not going up every year and crowding everything out and that we can grow ourselves out of the problem. And that is really the answer to the question. It is not take away people's pensions. It is grow the economy and, 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 uh, hold the line on the pension payments uh, by putting in a little more, like you would on your own home. You'd pay a little more in principle if you wanted to deal with this on your own home. A little more in principle early in order to to flatten out the payments over time. That helps us deal with it. And you you're going to need a, uh, more revenue, significantly more revenues to do to 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 refund or reinflate investment in the state. Uh, university system in to do the mental health work that you wanted to do the things that you promised. 
Well, I would say you need to do two things. You need revenue, but you need to reprioritize expenditures. Mm -hmm. So to me, that's, you know, there are savings that can be found in state government. I believe me, I ran a state agency, you know, 15 years ago. uh, And I can tell you that there's there's an awful lot that doesn't, you know, work well in state government. And people in state government want it to work better. I'm not talking about laying people off. They've already been laid off, frankly. We went from 85,000 employees to 55,000 employees over the last 20 some years. Um, so lots of people have already been laid out. We don't need to be doing that. What we do need to do, though, is we have, for example, an IT system that's you know look feels like it's 1998, mm-hmm. and um, and there is a uh, under Governor Rauner a new uh, IT project was put in place. It's the right direction for the state to go. But four years later, there's nothing to show for it yet, except. Uh, $300 million spent. Um, and so we've got to see real progress uh, from that because it will bring efficiency. I've done this in businesses. It always takes longer to do. It always takes a little more than you think it is going to cost. Uh, but when you're done with an ERP system, for example, you do realize real savings. And, and we can see that in state government, but you can't do it when you have antiquated systems. Your political career. Uh, well, before we, I should mention, you have t- said you want to st- change the state constitution, which prohibits a, a progressive tax system, uh, that would require a vote of the people that can't come until 2020. Um, uh, what do you do between now and then? Well, we certainly have to balance the budget of the state between now and then, even without a progressive income tax. And the reason for progressive income tax isn't as much about revenue and new revenues for the state as it is about fairness. But it would produce new revenues as well. It could. And I mean, it depends on where you set the rates, you know, Mm -hmm. and I think this is going to be a negotiation in the legislature. uh, Because remember, before it gets to a referendum of the people, you got to get 60% of the House and the Senate to vote for it to even get it on the ballot. So we've got to get that done first. Mm -hmm. That's why I've sat down even in transition here with the Republicans in the House and the Senate, as well as with a lot of Democrats and made sure that, you know, we're even the Republicans who oppose, you know, changing this flat regressive tax system that we've got, even they have thoughts about and helpful thoughts, frankly, about um, if we're, you know, I've said to them, if we're going to have one and we're going to have one, you're, you know, what do you think the big dangers are? Where are we going to have challenges uh, for our business community, creating jobs and so on? You know, help, help me. Uh, you know, give me your ideas, and and uh, and and th- that's going to happen. And you've got other ideas. Legalizing marijuana yes. for recreational use is a revenue potential revenue producer, principally for criminal justice reform reasons, and and frankly for safety and regulation. But yes, it would produce uh, perhaps as much as a billion dollars, seven hundred million to a billion dollars. Expanded gaming, that's possible. Um, you know, there's you have some experience right on the online. Gaming. I've been in the online world, Jan, um, uh, once upon a time, and uh, and I do think there's an opportunity for online as well as sports betting uh, in the state to bring revenue. Um, we've got to do it in the right way. How quickly are you going to move on all of this stuff? Um, well, how much time does Illinois have to solve some of its problems? Um, I would and- say – Move quickly. Okay, so thank you, and I, I think you know. And I look, I did. I'm not a patient person, frankly. So um, we're going to try to move ahead with uh, a number of these things right away. And um, if it takes two years or three years, you know, we'll do it. I'll, I'll be persistent. That's for sure. Um, I want to talk about your political journey. You, you. Um, first of all, we we should point out that you're married to a woman who you met as an intern uh, in 
Senator Dixon when you were working for Senator Dixon? Well, I was not intern, but I, I yes, um, uh, she was a staff assistant for Senator Tom Daschle, and I was a, a legislative assistant for, for Senator, uh, Dixon. Senator Dixon. Yeah, and MK she comes from South Dakota from a political family there. She does. Uh, she, in some ways, she's got more political experience. Started out with more political experience than I did. Her mother was a state senator for a couple of decades, uh, one of the first women state senators in South Dakota. Her father was uh, the chief of staff for the go- a very popular governor named Dick Knipe, mm-hmm. and then uh, uh, became a candidate for United States Senate yes. uh, in 1990. Um, and you ran for this. This was not your first rodeo. You ran for office once before. 20 years ago. I did. Uh, which is when you and I first came to know each other. You ran for Congress uh, and um, and lost. Uh, Jan Schakowsky, who's now been there for 20 years, uh, uh, won that race. She did. Um, what did you learn from, from that? Well, you know that often failure teaches you more than success. Um, and so I learned a lot during that. I was very um, optimistic and uh, and remain so um, about the opportunity to change public policy, um, but I didn't fully understand the mechanics of running for office and uh, how to put an organization together that would help you win. Um, I felt like if I get my ideas out there and I knock on enough doors, uh, I'll win. And uh, I was running against uh, Jan Schakowsky, who had a political organization that she had built over many, many years. I was running against a state senator who had, you know, the machine uh, behind him in his endeavor. And here I was, you know, building a startup, uh, uh, you know, entrepreneurial campaign. Uh, and, and in fairness, they had relationships with voters that you didn't have. That's true. And here I was introducing myself to voters. And and in that sense, I feel like, you know, uh, some victory. We had five people running in that primary. I came in third. Uh, but there were, you know, 14, you know, 14 and a half thousand people who were willing to vote for the new guy. Um, so you deve- I, I, it you, was you, good. You developed, uh, you were, you've been close over the years with uh, Bill and Hillary Clinton. You've been active in their uh, campaigns. In fact, one of the, um, you, you were very active in the campaign in 2008, and I remember very clearly being at the Jefferson Jackson dinner in Iowa in 2008, and you were uh, sitting over there at the Clinton table, and I'm not sure, I think maybe Penny was sitting with us. I don't know. I don't think she was there. She wasn't there. She wasn't there, but she was our finance yeah. chair. Yeah. Um, and it, you, you guys were not close for a period of time. Well, she worked on, obviously, she worked on uh, President Obama's campaign, and I got involved. I actually didn't know Bill Clinton uh, at all. Um, I mean, I'd met him somewhere in a, in a, in a photo line, maybe. Um, but it was, it was Hillary Clinton that I got to know when she was running for re-election to the United States Senate uh, in 2006 is when I really got to know her. And, uh, and I just felt, wow, this is one of the smartest, uh, mm-hmm. most amazing people that I'd met, certainly uh, best United States senator I'd ever met, uh, all due respect to the others that I've met. And so I was really enamored with the idea that um, somebody like that could become president. And 
and she's so experienced and a first woman ever. And I thought, you know, we can make history. And I got involved in her campaign. Penny simultaneously signed up with another history-making campaign uh, with President Obama. And um, and so, yeah, we were on the opposite side of this thing. And, uh, and uh, it, you know, at the same time, uh, my brother, who's a Republican, was working with John McCain uh, as campaign. So you guys have many bets down here. Hey, people said, what, what is um, Thanksgiving dinner like, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I mean, the fact is, you, 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 you navigated around my question, but um, your family dynamics were complicated. And it's not a secret because it's been publicly discussed, I think, by both of you, but uh, that there was a period of time uh, in which you were estranged uh, and I, it's it's interesting or uh, to me because I, you guys kind of weathered the most horrible personal tragedy together, and then and then you had this period of estrangement. Why? Well, I I think the truth is, you know, there was also the same period of time when she, you know, she was engaged in other activities, going to Washington and so on. Um, and uh, and for for me anyway, um, you know, there were a lot of uh, challenges. I think with the broader family dynamic that was written about that kind of invaded our relationship. But the truth is that she's, you know, she's an amazing person. You know, we as you said, we went through. Um, as you know, a she's lot a great together. friend of mine. Yeah, so. and she's you know she's, she's a, I'm she's a really, huge admirer, truly amazing. And she's been you know we've been um, working together on this on my campaign yeah. uh, too. And um, and that was kind of an opportunity, wasn't it? To... Yeah, and I think also her coming back to Chicago mm-hmm. after serving in the administration, you know, mm-hmm. was was a big change for her. Right? I mean, she had basically pushed business aside entirely and had gone to Washington, put yes. her all into that endeavor, yes. and as as and well she should, job. and did an amazing job. Yes, and commerce now is back. Uh, Would and you have gone a into the administration if Hillary had won? I often I wonder: know. Would you would you be sitting here today as as the governor elect of Illinois, or would you be a cabinet secretary or doing something else in Washington? You know, it's a funny question. I I mean, I think I'm guessing the answer is that I would not have run for governor, and mm-hmm. the reason is not because I would have gone into the administration, but because one of the catalyzing features of my uh, decision was that on November. 8th, you know, November 7th, 8th of uh, 2016, uh, MK and I looked at each other and said, you know, first of all, in shock, you know, but we looked at each other and said, now we have to fight harder. We can't give up. There were people around us, by the way, that night who basically said, I'm done with politics. You know, yeah. if this is how it's going to go, you know, and people are going to vote for this sort you, of were person. Were you in New York? I was. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you know, and we woke up the next morning and said, you know, that's it. We've got to work harder now. You know, what's interesting is that what you what you have expressed in, in a really dramatic way by running for governor for a couple of years and pouring yourself and your resources into it, um, people have done in many different ways around the country. I mean, whatever else you say about Donald Trump, he has – reignited a sense of engagement uh, in the country. Um, 
And, uh, and you saw and, here in Illinois, if I may interrupt, yeah. um, that we had we had record turnout, record turnout. Now, I, I want to take a little bit of credit for that because I built an organization all over the state that allowed people to plug no, in. No, and, and people give you credit for that. And and But but Donald Trump certainly catalyzed some of that. People expected 3.7 million people. That was going to be like the outside number. People say, wow, it's going to be a big turnout. Not 3.5, it'll be 3.7 million people will come out and vote. 4.4 million people showed up. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's you know that is that and is helped a combination elect, uh, of two member Democratic members of Congress uh, in the western suburbs, one of whom was a, a, a shock, you know, Lauren Underwood in the western suburbs. I predicted that though because I mean she's just an amazing is, person, an amazing yeah. candidate. Uh, did, did she she ran you know like the, the one of the best campaigns around, and we worked hard in that area. In fact, I won DuPage County for the first time. A Democrat Which won it since the citadel of Republicanism in in. Uh, in Illinois, right. um, you spent 171 million dollars of your own uh, on that race. A little less than that, but yeah, <laughs> that's the reported Give or take. number. Yeah, more than lunch money. Yeah. <laughs> let's just say um, more than anybody's ever spent personally uh, in a race uh, for state office in the country. Um, do you have any misgivings about that? About the a system that? Uh, that advantages someone who has the resources to spend that you had to spend. I don't think the system is fair. Um, the uh, first of all, we remember why I ended up having to spend that. We had an incumbent governor, and you know there's huge advantages being an incumbent. We had an incumbent governor who spent ninety five million dollars um, yeah, in reelection. That's the, and you've the made way, that spent, middle class. And, the, <laughs> and 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 he spent to get reelected in two thousand fourteen. He spent twice as much as the incumbent governor uh, spent at the time, uh, and uh, and a record amount uh, at that time. And so when I even thought about running, I mean, one of the certainly one of the considerations was, my goodness. He had just written himself a 50 check for $50 check, million, yeah. and then he got $20 million from a very wealthy hedge fund uh, guy here in Illinois, the wealthiest person in Illinois, in fact. Mm-hmm. So here he started with $70 million in an account, you know, and he's, you know, there's no doubt about it. He scared a lot of people away, um, yeah. and that's not right. And he had to go. I mean, I'm just, you know, he had to go. And there were people who were brave enough to run who didn't have the enough resources to take on that kind of, you know, mountain. Um, and I give them credit for stepping up to the plate. I ran against them in the primary. Um, and they're, they're good people. Uh, I, I just felt like, I, you know, we have to go beat him. And he's not going to be easily beaten. And so, I'm sure there are people who are listening saying, billionaire, heal thyself. Like, what do we do? To uh, create campaign a finance reform, we need. I mean, you, everybody's got to be focused on the fact that um, Citizens United and the other decisions at the Supreme Court that have now allowed these unlimited, you know, giving to uh, to PACs and and to candidates um, is wrong. I mean, we just have to change the system. And one of the things that I said throughout was, look, I want to go beat this guy, and I want campaign finance reform, and I'm going to do everything we can. For example. Um, one of the ways to reform the system is something they did in Montana, which is to force disclosure by these dark money mm-hmm. entities, uh, which are entering Illinois now. Um, we, we, you know, people need to know who's giving. At a minimum, you got to know who's giving the money. 
Um, mm-hmm. And I, you know, because now there's allegations that there's there was money coming into politics from Russia and China and so on uh, for the Trump uh, campaign and and inauguration and everything else. So disclosure is hugely important. There's a lot of things that we can do to go after campaign finance reform. And will um, be that will that be part of your. It will. Initial thrust? It will. It'll be, I mean, I, I'm not sure, actually sure what month uh, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll be doing this, but but suffice to say that I, I think election reform is really important. We also have to secure the ballot box and, you know, secure our elections, make people know that there's no hacking going on. And then the other part is we got to expand voting rights. I You saw that one of the reasons that we won uh, so big uh, this year was we expanded vote by mail. Mm-hmm. Um, we did it on our side, and we sent uh, vote by mail applications to Democrats. Republicans didn't do it. I think everybody should do it. I think Republicans and Democrats should be able to vote by mail. It's been hugely successful in other states. We can do it in Illinois. I want everybody to vote. And, you know, I think that more people that vote, in my opinion, is good for democracy. You um, you were you met with President Trump recently, and I couldn't help but sense you, you look slightly dyspeptic sitting there in the Roosevelt Room. And I was wondering what the experience was like and what the conversation was like. Only a former Chicago Tribune reporter would use the word dyspeptic to describe <laughs> that. Um, thank you. Um, I, uh, I, I was uh, – look, I was there because I think it's the right thing to sure. do for the governor of a state, no matter uh-huh. what party you belong to, to be I to go to the White you. House and fight for as much as we can get for the state of Illinois uh, and for the issues that I care about. Now, I, you know that I started every speech basically at the – you know, during my campaign uh, talking about something that I think – is absolutely true. I think that this president is racist. Um, I think he is uh, somebody who should not be president. It doesn't represent the majority of the people in the country. And um, and I will, you know, I'm going to fight him at every turn on a lot of issues. You know, there are a lot of voters in the state. I mean, he, he lost Illinois by mm-hmm. more than 17. a few votes. Mm-hmm. But you go to parts of the state, particularly downstate, where he has a very strong constituency. Why? I mean, are, do, do you think those voters are motivated by race? Well, let me tell you, I said the same thing when I was there and I was all over the state that I do here in Chicago mm-hmm. about him. Um, no, I don't think those voters are racist. I think that um, Donald Trump had a message at the time that he ran that was about fighting for working families in the middle class. I don't think he meant it. And he clearly has shown that he's not working for middle-class families in this country, and he's working instead for his buddies. Uh, but, uh, but, but that was his message. And Hillary Clinton, as much as I fought hard for her to win, and I think we would be all better off at G1, um, I think that Stronger Together is a, is a terrific message that I believe in, but not one if you want to run for a, an election uh, in, uh, in, you know, in the rest of the state of Illinois, for sure. Um, and so I ran a campaign that was about kitchen table issues, and I think that's why I won a lot of Trump voters, frankly. Um, I also won a lot of other voters. But, uh, but I got a lot of progressive support uh, because I'm a progressive Democrat, but I also got a lot of just middle-class folks out there. I say they're Trump supporters. They're not Trump supporters. They're people who just – they have not gotten a break. They, they need a raise. They need to send their kid to college and be able to afford it, and they need to be able to afford health care uh, or make, have it made available to them. 
And nobody's done that for them. And he promised that stuff, by the way. Trump promised all that while he was running. He didn't mean it. He was lying. But he promised it. And, um, you know, and, and people voted for him. As a how result. did you relate to him personally there? And how did he relate to you? My guess is he isn't unaware of what you were saying out there. Um, he was. I don't know if he was aware. I think he was probably aware. Seems pretty he, sensitive. He's right? very sensitive. Yeah, I think he knew about every person in the room, all the Democratic governors. Uh, he had some remark about each one, uh, as he would call on us. But, uh, but he um, look. I was there to do my job, um, and uh, I spoke with the secretaries of labor, transportation, uh, health, uh, and uh, and commerce because uh, they were there. And, uh, you know, I'm going to keep doing that. But he was, uh, uh, look, I think he can be, a, you know, in person, if you put aside all mm -hmm. of his, you know, um, uh, wrongheaded policies uh, and, you know, and the fact that I, I you know, uh, he's fighting against so many things. I believe he's, he can be a charming person if you avoid all those things about him. You know, he, he seems like he's got a charming personality to people. I wasn't charmed because I know too much about him. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but, but, you know, he, look, he tried to bring up immigration in the middle of a conversation about something completely different. He was, well, how's immigration going in your, you know, what problems do you have with immigration in your states? And thank God one of the Republican governors kind of interrupted him and said, you know, I really would like to talk about vocational training. And I thought, thank God, you know, because I, I'm going to lose it at this table if we start talking about immigration because mm -hmm. he's so dead wrong. Uh, so – um, you know, so that was my experience at, at the White House. I, I, um, I, I will say I'm going to continue to, you know, bite my lip and, uh, and go fight for the people of Illinois with, um, you know, to get as much as we can, whether it's a Republican administration or a Republican Senate, which is what we have to deal with. Um, and I'm, I'm going to work with also the, I've called and spoken with every single one of our Democrat, sorry, of our Republican uh, representatives here in mm -hmm. the state of Illinois, because I think it's really important to have us represented well about what we need for the state of Illinois. Mm -hmm. How's your family? You've got two kids. How's your family, uh, looking forward to, um, to this adventure? Well, I, I think we successfully – actually, at the beginning of the campaign, I called my uh, my friend Hillary Clinton uh, and asked her uh, about her experience running for president with Chelsea being 13 years old, I think, at the time, or 12. Uh, my kids are, you know, young teenagers. And uh, she said, look uh, – make sure you don't shove them out in front of the cameras and make it like, you know, mm -hmm. you're showing off your family all the time. You know, they should be there when you have something big happening, you're announcing or you're, uh, you know, you're claiming victory um, on election night or whatever uh, behind you, but don't make them go give speeches and don't shove them out in front. And But take them with you if you can just to be with them. Uh, so you can spend time with them, but don't put them out in front of the cameras. And she was just 100% right. And the result is now, um, I think they got through the, you know, what, what seemed like they a very saw you nasty get beaten onslaught. Pretty, yeah. Pretty, pretty regular. They did. But here's the great news, um, just to, you know, end here, but uh, is that uh, we ran a robust digital campaign and my opponent did not. And my kids don't watch television. <laughs> and so they're online and on YouTube and everything you else. Go. And so they on, they mostly only saw my ads, um, which I think is great. So they got through it just fine. They're excited about the future. Well, Governor-elect J.B. Pritzker, as an Illinoisan, I wish you great Great luck. Um, Illinois needs uh, a boost, 
And um, you, you obviously bring great enthusiasm to that task. So thanks for, thanks for this conversation and uh, best of luck as you move forward. Thank you, David. And you know we're all going to need your help, too, to, make, <laughs> to get through all this in Illinois. Well, I'm a good citizen. I'll do what I can. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit axefilespodcast.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.